You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. This episode features a lecture from Ben Kyes. Ben is one of the workers at the Southboro Labrie branch, and this lecture is called Living with Contradictory Expectations, a meditation on Let It Go and other inspirational breakup songs. Today we're going to be thinking about the way in which there's contradictory expectations in the world today and, and in our lives, and we're going to be doing it through the kind of the lens of uh, some pop music. And uh, as a, as a, as a um, kind of a whole sphere in which some of these ideas are communicated very, very clearly and, and in our face in some ways. Um, so my title today is Living with Contradictory Expectations, a Meditation on Let It Go and Other Inspirational Breakup Songs. Um, <clears throat> but first I want to talk a little bit about contradictory expectations. Uh, I was reading an article in The Atlantic not too long ago, and the article was entitled, the article was entitled, The Worst Patients in the World. This is an article in uh, the health section of The Atlantic. The Worst Patients in the World. Uh, David Friedman was the author, and he was arguing that one of the reasons for the crisis of health care costs that we have in the U.S. today is the fact that all the, American, all the patients are Americans. <laughs> and uh, we're obsessed with health and staying young, and yet, in Friedman, Friedman's words, we don't like to be told that unexplained symptoms aren't ominous enough to merit tests. And uh, the subtitle of the article, or one of the quotes that I lifted out of the article reads, Americans are hypochondriacs, yet we skip our checkups. We demand drugs we don't need and fail to take the ones we do. No wonder the U.S. leads the world in health spending. Anyway, so he goes on to try to explain some of this as to why this might be. I'm not going to get into any of that, but what, what, uh, what struck me about that is the, is the contradictory nature of our expectations. Uh, in some ways, we are walking contradictions. We desire uh, and demand mutually exclusive things of life very often. And when I say we, I don't necessarily mean like all of you people, but just as a culture today in America, we see this. Um, we want youth and immortality, and we want our aches and pains to be legitimized by doctors with worried faces. Somehow this appeals to us. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about what I mean by contradictory expectations. You'll see in the little blurb that I gave for this workshop, there's this quote uh, from Daniel Borston that's roughly almost 60 years ago when he wrote the book The Image. And he's arguing that in the modern West, we have extravagant and contradictory expectations for life. And he's really getting at something which I've thought about a bit, um, which is entitlement, this idea of, of an entitled culture, which is really one of the enemies of gratitude in our, in our world today, entitlement, the sense that we're owed things. Right? Uh, but anyway, Daniel Borston <clears throat> writes this. We expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars that are spacious, luxurious cars which are economical, 
We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to the church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed for never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. And I think most of us could probably add to this list of contradictory expectations. A few that came to mind for me, uh, we want to be able to post every detail of, of our lives on social media, and yet we want to reserve the right to be angry if, if we feel our privacy is violated. Right? Um, those things just don't seem to rationally uh, go together. Uh, most people in this country expect better government services and lower taxes. Um, maybe in the context of church, maybe we expect our pastors to preach great sermons, to be successful fundraisers, uh, to be decisive CEOs, um, to be a life-changing counselor and a visitor of the sick and needy, and be happy to see us every Sunday. Uh, these, these kind of expectations of people in life uh, are extravagant. Uh, and then something else we see, and, uh, other colleagues of mine in Brie have done a lot more work on this than I have, but, but uh, this idea of religion for atheists, people that don't really want to believe in, in a God that's really there, but do want to live with many of the benefits of religion, community, a sense of meaning, uh, an ethical foundation maybe for living life. All those are, are benefits of religion, but without the inconvenience of believing in a God who actually is there and might demand something of me that I don't want to give. Um, just examples of these sort of contradictory desires and expectations. I think Daniel Borson was very insightful. I think he's right. We have expectations of life and aspirations that not only are unrealistic in themselves, but that directly conflict with other aspirations that we have. Uh, and because uh, it takes a lot of self-knowledge to examine our expectations of life, we often don't. So we wonder why we experience disillusionment and frustration um, and have a sense that somehow we've been wronged in life. Things haven't gone according to our expectations. Borston says, never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed. That's what we do notice. We don't necessarily name our conflicting expectations, but we do notice when we're disillusioned and disappointed. So... Um, Christian people, I think it's, we were called to look to the God of the Bible to, to, uh, to adjust our expectations. What does God actually promise? Uh, what kind of life does, does Christ tell us to prepare for? Um, but even for those of us who are asking those questions, we're also immersed in a part of a culture. And there's many extra-biblical inputs from that culture as to what life is about, what life uh, should involve, what we should expect from it. And so we're going to be looking at some of those extra-biblical inputs here uh, today um, and talking about uh, some breakup songs. We're not going to listen to many songs. It's just a handful because of the limited time. And sort of culminating in the song Let It Go from the movie Frozen, uh, which um, I'm sorry if you've only just gotten it out of your head. It's been a couple years, but uh, we're going to get it back into your head. <laughs> I apologize in advance. Um, this, this song, which kind of just was like a bomb in American culture, a B-O-M-B, uh, in American culture, 
um, particularly as it sits in the context of the story of the, of the movie, is really fascinating to me. What what it was what it was accomplishing, and uh, I think it's one of the best expressions of contradictory hopes and aspirations. You know, when you have the movie and the story put together. Um, and, and yet it was all packaged together nicely and, and America lapped it up. So, uh, I guess, first of all, I just want to give a little, little bit of a, um, a detour and, and answer the question, why are, we, why are we doing this at all? What's the point of, of taking pop music this seriously? Uh, lots of people in Labrie have talked very seriously about fine art for many years, and what am I doing talking about uh, pop radio? Um, I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh, pop music indicates something about the heart of our culture. It's an indicator. Pop songs are popular because, to some degree, they tell us what we already believe or want to believe is true. If you think of uh, music that radically goes against the grain of the mainstream assumptions people have, it doesn't end up being pop music, does it? But uh, if we want to have a clue about the assumptions of, of people, uh, of many, many people, uh, it's a good idea to, to be familiar with the music. So I, I love Tom Waits' music, but I don't listen to Tom Waits in order to sort of keep my finger on the pulse of today's culture. He's, a, he's kind of a weird guy. He does music that isn't really accessible to everybody. That's fine, but, uh, but it's, not, um, it's good to listen to music that, that many, many, many more people are hearing. Right, to understand what's even going on around us. Um, in addition to being an indicator, pop music is an instructor. Um, sets the course in some ways. Songs tell us what we should value, what we should long for, what we should expect from life. They tell us what we should view as normal. And this kind of instruction is on the level of our imaginations and our desires. It's, it's very much what Dick was talking about this morning. It's not just about our what we can affirm with our minds cognitively. It's where's our heart and our desires going? What do we view as beautiful? Um, those are just as important as what we affirm is true. And that's the level at which a lot of pop music affects us, right? Um, James K.A. Smith, he's been talked about a couple times today, but he, he tells us that advertising and the mall and pop culture in general, he would probably include pop music, gives us a vision of what the good life is. A uh, picture of what the good life is or should be. So in this sense, I think pop music is a lot like advertising in that it affects everybody and nobody thinks they're affected by it. Right? It's just kind of part of the air we breathe. We don't see it. Um, but we are much more affected than we think. <clears throat> There's a, uh, a very sinister quote from uh, Taylor Swift. I'm a little hesitant to quote Taylor Swift here in Nashville. I'm just going <laughs> to... just going to run out of town quickly after this. Uh, but this was given at, a, at some sort of uh, release party for her album, 1989. Uh, and she says this. She's talking about her fans. They're discovering the music that tells them how they are going to live their lives and how they should feel and how it's acceptable to feel. I think that's kind of exciting. So it doesn't, you know, you just step back and you reflect a little bit on what she's claiming here. She's claiming I, <laughs> through the music that I'm presenting, get to tell other people how they should view life, what's important, what's okay to feel and not feel. And of course it's exciting to her. She's claiming some sort of omnip you know, omnipotence. And, um, but uh, 
that's kind of a little bit more of a bold-faced claim than we often see. Usually it's a little more subtle than that. <laughs> but but it's, it's telling that she, she articulates it in that way. So I think it's, it's really a good idea to listen to popular music with thoughtful ears and as an alternative to, on the one hand, alarmist prohibition. Oh, it must be bad. Don't listen to it. It's going to corrupt you. you know, on the one hand, which, by the way, if you have young children, you just make it more appealing when you do that. Um, or mindless consumption, on the other hand, just just bathe in it, let it wash over you, and don't think about what you're hearing. Right? Those are two poor choices. Uh, it's better to listen uh, and um, and listen with uh, with thoughtful ears. Uh, another disclaimer is that I'm not really going to comment. I'm not trying to make comments on the state of pop music today. I'm not making any grandiose claims about what's going on in our culture in terms of music itself. I'm really just taking a few songs that are a couple years old. And because of how clearly they demonstrate the kind of issue I want to talk about. So um, this is not a, any kind of survey or, or sampling of pop music. Um, I'll just start off by playing one. This was uh, a, a big hit a couple years ago by, um, uh, what's your name? Strong, you'll know it. <laughs> Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> Thank you. 
Shop next door. He's bothered by this, but it's a serious fear of missing out in the other room. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, this is a song by Kelly Clarkson. She was one of the uh, one of the first American Idol champion years and years ago, um, but has had a recording um, career since. You think about this song; it, it's definitely a, a song of liberation, right? Um, and actually, there's there's quite a lot to affirm in the song. In, in some ways, I'm not trying to to just uh, um, to, to cr- criticize only. Uh, at whatever this breakup was, whatever this relationship was, seemingly uh, she has her self-respect back. Uh, she realizes she's not dependent on this man for her worth. Uh, the breakup hasn't destroyed her. These are all good things, right? Uh, but there's something else going on in the song, and something that I I can only describe as a sort of uh, hyped-up heroism. Uh, The tone is triumphant. Um, The end of this relationship has propelled her to what I call new levels of awesomeness. Um, Or perhaps revealed a depth of awesomeness that was always there, uh, just waiting to be uncovered, waiting to explode. And obviously the imagery, a lot of the imagery is of fighting. It's, it's of, of a, uh, almost a boxing imagery. I'm a fighter. I'm, I'm comeback swinging. And uh, in any case, this potential for greatness is something that she can only achieve by being independent and free of this other person, whoever he is. We don't really know anything about it. But. And, uh, and so I'm curious as to what this springs from. What, this tri- the triumphant tone, the inspirational aspects of the breakup song. So, you know, the, another song I'm playing today, both, both of these songs were like exercise mix songs that you get pumped up to. And it's about, like, for what for most people in real life is a horribly sad experience, right? The end of, a, of an important relationship. And, and yet these are totally um, get your pulse up, get on, the, get on the bike, go to spin class or whatever, and just, you know, <laughs> listen to this music. It's, it's meant to pump us up. Yeah. The, the phrase, uh, the monologue, because I have me, myself, and I. Yeah. Trinitarian yeah. kind of. <laughs> 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 I had not thought of that. Maybe this song will, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit just about some of the background to these kinds of, uh, this kind of thinking. And this category in the lecture is just a whole bunch of stuff. 
I didn't attempt to, to organize it terribly well, but, but uh, if we go, uh, we'll talk about self-actualization as a, as a concept, personal autonomy, and then the desire for community. And these are uh, three important things that are going on in the world today. If we go way back to the 1940s, the psychologist Abraham Maslow, he's one of the, the predecessors of the positive psychology movement, um, which sort of departed from more um, f- from studying uh, psychological pathology and wanted to get to the bottom of understanding how how do healthy, high-functioning person f- people function psycho- psychologically. And so that is uh, very much alive and well, that school of thinking today. But he's one of the, the uh, sort of early ancestors of it. And he developed this model called the hierarchy of needs, which was a sort of a pyramid idea. Uh, at the very top of the, of the hierarchy was the need for self-actualization, which according to Maslow, uh, individuals can only achieve if they have first succeeded in taking care of all the more basic needs lower down on the, on the pyramid. Uh, the needs for food and security and all these other things. Uh, and self-actualization is kind of the achievement of one's highest potential. That's what, that's what it means. <clears throat> this is what Maslow himself says. He says, what a man can be, he must be. This need we call self-actualization. It refers to the desire for self-fulfillment, namely to the tendency for him to become actualized in what he is potentially. This tendency might be phrased as the desire to become more and more what one is, to become everything that one is capable of becoming. And so uh, another way of saying is that you could say that it's a hunger for your possibility to become a reality. And Maslow actually did not think that many people reached this final stage. Uh, Many people in the world are worrying about the more basic fundamental (laughs) problems below on the pyramid and don't actually uh, have the time to worry about self-actualization. But uh, it's still something that drives and motivates people, he's trying to argue. It's still, it's still something that we perceive as a need to achieve some high potential. And uh, the model uh, of the hierarchy of needs, I think, has since, and I haven't done a lot of reading on this, but I'm told, has since been criticized uh, within uh, psychological circles um, for various reasons. And there's, there's things we could criticize about it, I think, uh, from a biblical perspective. But the fact remains that this notion of self-actualization is very powerful in the minds of people today. It's alive and well. Uh, it's a big part of the pop psychology that, that the average person carries around with them in their heads, even if they don't have a name for it. And uh, today, I think there's a difference. People assume that self-actualization is achievable by anyone who simply believes in themselves. It's not this distant thing, necessarily. It's something that anybody can, can have. Just reach out and grab your potential. Uh, this theoretical actualized self is of supreme, almost sacred importance. Uh, It's not just your right, but even your duty. There's almost a mandate to pursue it. We're told by others that we owe it to ourselves. In any case, many, many contemporary people view life as a journey of self-invention. It's considered a basic human freedom today to invent, construct, define your identity however you choose however you see fit. And anyone who questions my right to do this is hateful. This is very much the climate in which we live today. Um, 
And there are some weaknesses, though, to, to having self-actualization as our ultimate goal in life. And, and I'll just say a few things, a few reflections. Um, and this may be a good thing to talk about in the discussion time. But who in the world can possibly know what their potential is? <coughs> potential, by definition, is something that is hypothetical. We haven't seen it in our lives. We don't know what it is yet. We can't know. And so we can't really know if we've reached it. When do we stop striving? Is there any such thing as rest for someone who believes in self-actualization as their ultimate goal in life? Uh, it's an unknown goal. When do I stop? What if I have delusions of grandeur and I have an idea of a potential that's way beyond what I can actually reach? Or what if I am pretty much lazy and enjoy the couch and am way too easily satisfied with a mediocre life when my potential is actually much bigger than, than I'm able to, to see. So our potential isn't at all clear to us and it's hard to know without turning somewhere else what it is. Um, secondly, there are many different kinds of potential depending on the choices that we make. How do we know what our potential should be? What should we be striving for? And there's very little guidance within within this scheme uh, offered to us today except for this contemporary doctrine which is to follow your heart (coughs) follow your heart and there's not much of a question of well follow your heart where what is your heart leading you to Uh, what if your heart changes every day what if you know um, what uh, the heart is not necessarily our best guide even though it is a real part of who we are And then thirdly, uh, it's also not at all clear what the role of other people are to play. Think of how significant other people are in our lives. But if if this theoretical potential of myself is my ultimate goal, my ultimate priority in life, how are other people supposed to function in my story? Um, If my journey is is primarily self-defined and it's about my own invention of myself, Despite all this, the idea uh, that our primary goal should be to reach for some personal potential as defined by me, myself, and I uh, is a very powerful one, and it's not going away. Uh, I think we, I, see, I see elements of it even in myself, even though I'm critical of it. Um, so at the root of it really is this idea that, of personal autonomy, that we are, you know, autonomy is a, is a word that's used in many different ways. Uh, essentially, it means uh, self-law. It means you're a law to oneself. Like uh, what Anna mentioned, in the, we all said out loud about the book of Judges, where each, each kind of narrative in the book of Judges ends with, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That, that's a, a statement of autonomy. We get to decide what's right and wrong. We get to do whatever we feel like. Um, I, I am the one who defines these realities. Um, and uh, along with the belief in the autonomy of the individual, um, People do have, um, oh, sorry, <clears throat> I'm confused here. Um, the, the belief in autonomy, I think, is basically to believe that uh, the human individual should have the freedom to select their own moral values, um, to define and invent themselves, to follow their desires, all the things we've been talking about, um, to construct their own identity. And... Uh, 
along with this is the accompanying belief that no one else should be able to tell me anything about that. <laughs> this is up to me. Uh, if I'm autonomous, other people don't get to say who I am. Um, so there's a lot we can say about that. Uh, that's a huge topic, and I'm just kind of giving it a, a glancing blow. But I think it's out of this philosophy of what a person is as autonomous that a lot of the unrealistic expectations bloom, if you want to call it. Uh, it's out of this that they come. This is the root of a lot of it. Uh, one example um, is the faith that people have, that moving through life, acting as autonomous people, things will actually go well for us. That, that is a, quite a step of faith to believe that. Uh, that the universe will bless my philosophy of life with fulfillment and peace and contentment. This is naive in a couple ways. Uh, autonomy is a nice idea, but it's actually not even possible. Autonomy, human autonomy, real autonomy is, is, a, is a myth. None of us are independent at all in any way. Even if we don't believe in God, none of us are independent. We're all uh, deeply connected to creation, to other people, dependent in ways we can't even see or articulate. Uh, so in some ways, to, to claim that we're autonomous is just an illusion. Um, uh, and I think there's always going to be friction. We talk about this in Labrie a lot. When people have a, a, a wrong idea of the world and life, we can tell them that it's wrong, but very often what needs to happen is they need to bump up against reality. Reality will push back. Uh, we don't necessarily always have to wag our finger at people and say, no, 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 your philosophy is off. <laughs> Reality will push back. There will be friction in our lives if we go through it thinking that we are autonomous uh, because the universe actually doesn't adjust to what I think is real in my head, always. Um, the universe doesn't adjust to, to who I think I am, necessarily. Um, so, second reason why I think this is naive is that... Uh, this idea that we will experience satisfaction and contentment by living in this way. Uh, to put it simply, I think people need a level of connection and commitment to each other that cannot exist with personal autonomy. People are connected to each other and need to be connected to each other in a way that just cannot coexist with pure autonomy. And I think most people who actually care about their relationships and make sacrifices, they, they're sacrificing their autonomy all the time without necessarily calling it that. But, but uh, anyone who's in meaningful friendships and relationships are doing that. So as our, our culture's faith in personal autonomy has deepened, though, so has our loneliness and our disconnection from each other. And we've already, it's, it's exciting to see how different, different lectures and workshops are, are, there's common threads going on throughout all of what we're saying. We're, we're, we're talking about fragmentation in the world, so we, we oftentimes, there'll be points of connection between these different talks, but, but um, uh, Rob talked about the loneliness epidemic this morning, um, which is a term that's gotten a lot of press in the last few years. An epidemic, which usually, usually is referring to infectious disease, right? An epidemic or, or even worse, a pandemic. Uh, but what does it mean when we're talking about loneliness? An epidemic of loneliness. Um, isolation is not isolated anymore. Human isolation is the norm in the West. Uh, loneliness has been declared a public health crisis in the UK. 
back in 2018, Tracy Crouch was appointed a Minister of Loneliness. That was her, that's a government job. <laughs> minister of Loneliness in order to, quote, tackle the social and health issues caused by social isolation, which are a lot. We're not just talking about anxiety and depression, all kinds of physiological issues uh, resulting from, uh, from isolation of people. Uh, I was in Holland a couple of years ago, and Rob Ludwig, who's here at the conference, I forget the statistic he said, but we were in the city of Utrecht. He says, if you look at the doors in this city, this is the part I forget, some very, very high percentage of those doors, only one person lives behind them. Something like 90%. Like, like, they, there's very, very little living together of people. Um, people are isolated. Now, uh, <clears throat> the fact that this is, is bad for us uh, should not surprise us if we accept the Bible's explanation for what a human being is, right? which is a social being um, created for relationship with God and with other people. This is uh, an absolutely foundational part of who we are. So, uh, <clears throat> along with the belief in autonomy of the individual, people tend to have a longing for significant relationships, for connection, for community. And uh, even the introverts among us long for community in one way or another, to have meaningful friendships, to be known and understood and loved, particularly to be known and loved. This is, sometimes we feel like those two things couldn't possibly exist at the same time, either I'm known truly and nobody would love me or uh, someone loves me but because they don't fully know me but inside all of us I think there's a hunger to be both known and accepted and loved uh, we have the expectation or maybe just the hope of a level of connection and relationship and fulfillment that's very very hard to find and this is one of the things we see at Labrie a lot one of the common recurring grievances of our students uh, is where, where is community to be found? What, what is this thing we keep talking about? Where, where, sh where would I find it if it exists? Um, where are committed friendships? Who are my people? Where is my place? Um, huge number of people just feel utterly rootless, disconnected from people in place. So uh, if you keep in mind our original quote from Daniel Borston, it doesn't take long to see the conflict of expectations here. There's an expectation that will be treated as autonomous, independent, when it comes to my life, I call the shots, and the expectation that I will have meaningful, healthy, deep relationships, um, that I will find lasting community. Uh, we want the benefits of social commitment and the freedom to do whatever the heck we want. <laughs> we we uh, want the joys of belonging and the power of independence. We want love, but we don't want other people's needs and desires to make claims on us. So in Borson's words, we want to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly. That's another way of saying what I'm trying to say. Constantly on the move, in other words, autonomous. No, nothing slows me down, I can do whatever I want, go wherever I want. And yet, deeply connected to the people nearby me. How, how could that possibly be? <clears throat> So personal autonomy and community do not mix well. They don't play well together. Um, and I think, this, uh, I think this is because if we actually engage in the kind of meaningful relationships we say we want, other people do make demands on us. Um, other people start acting like they should have a say in who I am 
and what should matter to me. It's a big part of marriage, actually. <laughs> Allowing somebody else to have a say in who I am and what should matter to me. Uh, it's a hard thing. Uh, I don't have the sole authority over my identity anymore when I'm in close relationship with other people. So there's another side of the coin, which is that uh, the more determined I am to be autonomous, the less likely I will ever even start to form those kinds of relationships. <laughs> I'll know. I'll, I'll know from afar that they'll, I'll be, I'm going to be tied down. Um, and so this kind of philosophy is a soil for very shallow, self-serving friendships. People are a means to an end. And that's as far as it gets. Um, so, uh, one expression of this particular conflicting expectation of life is, is, is this breakup song idea. Uh, now, <clears throat> oops, not that. Um, There are so many pop songs about love in some way or another. Romantic love is basically the, the, the topic, the subject for pop music in general. And so uh, whether it's uh, euphoric, I'm in love songs, whether it's uh, you know being in love with someone from afar and they'll never be mine songs, whether it's uh, let's try to get this together, babe songs, whether it's Let's try this one more time. Come back. I've been a fool. So you know, there's a million different kinds, kinds of, kinds of. You know, um, again, I don't have an exact percentage, but it's got to be in the high 90s. The percentage of pop music that has to do with romantic love in some way or another. And even with, even breakup songs. There's. I studied ethnomusicology in college, and we just love to have categories and subcategories and, and to, to identify everything. And and there's all kinds of different breakup songs, different different themes and attitudes. Um, but in one way or another, it's, it's very common to see romantic love as an idol, something that is the ultimate hope, right, in life. And this goes back a long ways. Um, since I'm in Nashville, I need to quote a country music star from long ago, I think 19, late 1950s, early 60s, named Skeeter Davis. And she sang this song, Don't They Know It's the End of the World? And uh, does anyone know this song? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing. Anyway, uh, Nope, not that one. Sorry, I'm, I'm just going to read it to you. I don't actually have a slide for it. Why does the sun go on shining? Why does the sea rush to shore? Don't they know it's the end of the world because you don't love me anymore? Why do the birds... Okay, I'm thinking, but why do the birds go on singing? Why do the stars glow above? Don't they know it's the end of the world? It ended when I lost your love. So this is pretty much as good a... Good a uh, working definition of idolatry. <laughs> you know, this is this this was of such importance to me that the whole world should stop. Right, right now. You know, something we only, yeah. Um, I think uh, pop music is still obsessed with romantic love, uh, but in some of the songs that I'm playing today, it's been usurped by a much more overt obsession with the self. Right. So it's still a still a breakup song, but it's really about me not about the loss of this person. It's not even about the loss of the feelings that this person produced for me, which is a lot of songs are about that too. But, uh, and so this is another example, uh, which was um, from 2013, Katy Perry. See if it's queued up. I'm sorry if you all are, just are sick to death of these songs. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, which for the sake of time, we're going to... I know it makes you sad, but we're going <laughs> to skip to you. Um, I have to confess, I find this song musically, like, I know it, it, we all got sick of it on the radio probably, but I find it quite uh, irresistibly powerful. <laughs> Even just the beat. Um, <clears throat> Even though I've rolled my eyes at it many times, it's the kind of thing that the sheer energy of it is, is um, I thought, kind of grabbed me. Uh, again, it's a workout playlist song. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, 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 you can't help it. It's just something about the, the, the heavy kick drum. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, uh, in a sense, in one sense, you could say it's a well-written, well-arranged pop song. It affects you on the level of the gut or the imagination like pop music is supposed to, right? Uh, we get caught up in the spirit of a song and become enamored almost subconsciously by something that we wouldn't defend, <laughs> necessarily. But uh, lyrically, this one puts the other one to shame. It puts the Kelly Clarkson to shame for the boxing imagery. This one is all boxing imagery, right? Um, the Eye of the Tiger, this is, there's this, anyone who remembers the movie Rocky, the band Survivor saying this is the Eye of the Tiger, which was used in the movie Rocky, and it was all, all about boxing, getting ready for the big fight. Um, you knocked me down, but I got up, which is boxing ring imagery. And then there's even a quote from Muhammad Ali, um, floating like a butterfly, stinging like a bee. That was what he said about himself. You know? So it's, it's all these references, really interesting references. Um, the relationship has ended and the fist fight has begun. And uh, this guy, whoever he is, will not know what hit him. And uh, again, similar to the song Stronger, the relationship ending has served to boost her belief in herself. Right? Uh, and her own strength, her own resourcefulness, her self-esteem has spiked. It's the line, I, I went from zero to my own hero. So now I'm the one that I admire most. <laughs> um, and this man is the drab background for this new self-discovery. Uh, his purpose, if you like, by being a jerk was to propel her towards some higher personal excellence. And if you know the song, the old the 1970s song, the Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive, you know, which was this, this um, iconic breakup song. Uh, this, is, this is miles from that. She's not surviving. She's taking on the world. She's a powerhouse. And uh, within this context, people can either be aids or obstacles to this potential, right? This potential for greatness. Uh, other people are either stepping stones towards that or stumbling blocks, things that get in the way of that. Uh, but either way, other people are secondary in importance to this pursuit of ourselves. And I want to make a, an important qualification here um, is that I'm not arguing that the empowerment of women is a bad thing. This is not, this is not the takeaway that I want you to, <laughs> to, to leave with. Uh, in fact, uh, in many, many relationships, um, many people that I've known, uh, the woman's identity and personality are, are just dismissed or sidelined as secondary, right? Secondary importance to the man's. And there's a long history of women being eclipsed by men, sometimes even their own husbands. And I don't think this is in any way honoring to God. Uh, I have two young daughters, and I'm, my wife and I are trying to raise them to know how to use their voices, to know how to, um, to recognize 
that they're of value to recognize when they're being devalued because they're girls, right? So this is something I feel passionate about. So there's a way in which Kelly Clarkson and Katy Perry here are maybe offer a, offering a necessary corrective, right, to something that's actually broken, to the attitude that says, uh, having a man is so important that I should put up with all manner of indignities to keep him. That is actually a common belief and attitude that many, many women have today, that, uh, that it's so important to keep this relationship that I should put up with all manner of indignities. And I think more Christians should be critiquing this. This is something that, that we uh, should be critiquing um, very strongly. But uh, that's, that's a qualification, I think. So, so again, I'm not trying to condemn everything that any of these songs are saying. But there's also, in addition to that, a philosophy being presented to us. Uh, we're being exhorted to believe that true strength is to be found only when we are on our own, when you need nobody and when nobody can make claims on you. Because these songs are all about uh, jettisoning relationship and being alone. Uh, when your freedom to chart your own course in life is unaffected by other people's needs and desires, that's when you're truly yourself. If your life is unaffected by other people's needs and desires, that's when you're yourself. Me, myself, and I. You know, uh, There's just a new beginning for me, realizing who I am. So... Uh, <clears throat> I think this is, this is something that we see, uh, this attitude causes a lot of carnage in all kinds of relationships, not just romantic relationships, but uh, think about it. Two people committed to their own autonomy, committed to their own personal journey of self-actualization, both viewing the other as, to some degree, a stepping stone towards their own individual uh, identity, their own awesomeness. Uh, this doesn't bode well. Uh, the problem is, uh, and again, uh, this is happening in the context of a culture which is plagued by loneliness. Right? These, these, are, these relationships are on collision courses everywhere we look, and there's a reason why we are so lonely. And yet, very few people recognize the conflicting hopes and expectations we have, and so this only perpetuates loneliness in the world uh, in a really tragic way. This is not uh, me just poking holes in, in a bad philosophy. This is uh, something that has tragic and very real consequences. I want to move on to the song Let It Go, because I prom- this is my promise to you all that we were talking about Let It Go, so I don't want to disappoint you. Um, I think the song Let It Go, uh, particularly in the context of the Disney movie Frozen, this is 2013 again, we see an extreme version of these ideas that I've been talking about, and we'll, we're, we'll dig into it fairly deeply. Uh, Let It Go is a breakup song with the rest of humanity. <laughs> with human society in general. Uh, it is a cathartic escape from community. Uh, society is abandoned with much the same purpose of self-actualization, self-discovery, unfettered self-expression. This is, this is, what's a, this is the main theme of the song. Uh, who, who's actually seen the movie? Awesome. Okay. Safe, fairly safe bet that most of you had seen it. Uh, I saw it um, with, with my mother-in-law and my two daughters, and I had no, no preconceived notions of it at all. I had no idea what I was getting into. It's like, oh, it's the new Disney movie. I've got two daughters. All right, we'll go to this thing. It's about princesses or something. So we walked in there and walked out utterly shocked. I didn't even know what hit me. I was flabbergasted by this film, particularly the song. I was just like, 
What happened? And clearly everyone around me was like, so like, into it. Like, this is so strange. I, I couldn't even criticize it. I didn't even know if I was supposed to criticize it. Like, what just happened? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, the movie Frozen is a very, very, very loose retelling of the, of the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, The Snow Queen. Uh, if you read The Snow Queen, you'll see how loose uh, it is. Um, and just a reminder, if you needed it, of how popular this was, right? Uh, the movie Frozen won the Academy Award for Best Animated Movie in 2013. Let It Go, which is the big song, uh, written by the husband and wife duo uh, Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez. Um, it was performed by Adina Menzel, who did the voice for Elsa's character. That, it won Best Song at the Academy Awards. For about a year after it was released, if you Googled the words parody of and stopped, uh, <laughs> let it go be the first result to pop up, of course. Uh, if you typed in the words who wrote and stopped, let it go would be the first thing to pop up. <laughs> Uh, schools had to create new rules prohibiting the singing of Let It Go in classrooms and hallways. Um, yeah. And you, but you know you have a hit song when, when schools are changing policy. <laughs> uh, you know you've arrived. A lot of people in Nashville hoping to claim that. Um, now, I don't even know how this is possible, but I googled the name of the song a few days ago and was notified, you know, under the little search bar that in point six six seconds there were five billion five hundred and ninety million results found. For let it go. This has to do with all you know, millions of parodies and million you know, I don't even know what it, I mean, that's a big number. I don't even understand. But um and it wasn't just popular uh, among the typical princess loving demographic that Disney often caters to. Right. Uh, it wasn't just popular with young girls. Uh, just as many parents were obsessed with the song, uh, just as many young adults. Um, there were many fervent devotees of the song. I felt nervous saying anything that wasn't positive about the song in public. Actually, for a while, I'm like, oh gosh, I mean, this has really means a lot to people. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it struck a chord. Uh, it's clearly a stroke of genius. Whatever, whatever is going on, they, they clearly got, they got something. Uh, before I show the video, I, I really do need to give a little bit of, of um, I'm going to show a video of the scene where she sings Let It Go. I'll, just, I'll give a little bit of a running start in terms of the plot of the movie, because it's, it's quite important to, to understanding what's going on here. So there's two sisters, Elsa and Anna. They're princesses in the kingdom of Arendelle. Elsa, the older sister, uh, who will one day be queen, has a magical power. Uh, she can produce ice and freeze, freeze things with her hands. And she can produce snow and snowmen in the middle of summer and things like this. Um, and she, it, it's a thing that she uses to entertain her sister. It's something that they play together. And she has this, this power, and it's very uh, harmless and fun. But she does accidentally injure her sister one day and, uh, when they're young. And from that point on, Elsa is kept in isolation, uh, supposedly for the protection of everybody else. So her power... Uh, grows, but it's viewed as dangerous and it's suppressed by her parents. It's a source of shame and sadness and loneliness to her. She can't play with her sister anymore. Um, if anybody of you know, do you want to build a snowman? That song just. Um, 
So uh, she's told over and over again by her father to conceal, don't feel. That's like a mantra throughout the film. Conceal, don't feel. So somehow this expression of her power is connected to her emotions. Don't feel anything too strongly, right? Because you'll unleash something. Meanwhile, the younger sister, Anna, has no memory of the accident and doesn't understand why her sister won't play with her anymore. And the parents die, because it's a Disney movie, the parents have to get out of the way uh, for, the other, for the young people to grow and experience uh, awesomeness. So the parents die, the girls grow up, and it's Elsa's coronation day. This is when she becomes queen. Elsa manages for a time to conceal her secret from the adoring crowds, but she gets in an argument with her sister Anna, and, and suddenly um, she snaps and unleashes her power in front of everybody creates these huge icicles coming out and, and she's accused of being a sorceress and she runs. So uh, in fear and shame, she flees without knowing that she's actually casting her kingdom into a perpetual winter behind her as she leaves. So, so that's the buildup. That's, that's, like, that's what happens up to this point. And then we'll um, watch this. Hopefully it will go smoothly. Why not? Of course. Someone probably knows all the words. He could sing it for us. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot about the gloves. Oh yeah, she has to wear gloves. Yeah, she, she wears wear gloves. gloves. Yeah. Oh, this will be too bad. Do you think we should just cut and paste that address into Continue, uh, yeah. YouTube? Yeah. If I um, yeah, just one second. <clears throat> that this is even potentially working is amazing for me. So you all should be super impressed. Oh! <laughs> 
let it go. <laughs> Sorry, I had to um, find my place again. So, um, yeah, one of the most fascinating fun facts about the movie Frozen is that the script was already pretty much written. And then the songwriters brought the song Let It Go to the scriptwriters, and they rewrote the entire movie around the song. <laughs> so the, the song basically changed the entire course of the narrative. Elsa originally was going to be more of a traditional villain character in the story, but the song was so compelling that they turned her character into a sympathetic character. And uh, so they noticed a hit song when they saw one. Uh, Jennifer Lee, one of the one of the scriptwriters, said, "The minute we heard the song, the first time, I knew that I had to rewrite the whole movie." That's pretty potent songwriting, she said. Um, so I'm just going to go through the song real quick. Not real, well, not too quick. I know I'm going I'm going a little late, but um, I think uh, you you witnessed a complete transformation of her character within the space of whatever a pop song takes. To, to something nice, right? Um, the snow glows white on the mountain tonight, no footprints to be seen, a kingdom of isolation, it looks like I'm the queen. So she's still, this is a place of sad, sadness and regret. When she says, I'm the queen, it's a sarcastic comment. Queen, queen of nothing. Queen of a kingdom of one. <laughs> it's just me. And she's sad by it. Um, she's experiencing loss. Uh, the wind is howling like the swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I tried. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel. Don't let them know. She's repeating the words her father has told her her whole life. Um, she even wags her finger a little bit. So this is clearly like the, the moralistic voice in her head. Uh, but then she realizes that the, the damage has been done. What's the point in, in caring about this anymore? I'm just going to, to let it go. So what does let it go mean? Uh, what is she letting go? Um, she's letting go feelings of shame, which have been built up in her life, uh, being controlled by other pe people's expectations, uh, being defined by other people's restrictions. She's letting go of the fear of being found out, the fear of disappointing others. But that's only half of it, which she's letting go. Letting go also refers to, to her power in a positive sense. I'm letting it out. You know, I'm finally expressing myself. Um, um, something that I've been holding in my whole life, I'm, I'm letting out. Um, she says, I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. So she's letting people go. <laughs> um, she's slamming the door on the actual people, including her sister, who she spent her whole life trying not to hurt. And she's letting go as well of, of the responsibilities of, uh, of being queen and the obligations of being queen. She, she, she says the past is not the past. She takes her crown off and like hucks it out the window <laughs> like a frisbee. It's a very symbolic act for, for rejecting her responsibilities as queen. Um, and then I think that one of the most potent um, parts of the song is uh, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. So this is this this is the part where maybe I almost had a, a heart attack in the, in the cinema. <laughs> I'm like, did she just say that? <laughs> uh, this is like a textbook definition of autonomy. 
just like you could almost almost read it out of a out of a dictionary. Law unto oneself. For me, there are no rules. There's no such thing as right and wrong. I get to decide this right now. And it's very much a picture of the romantic artist, a picture of the artist coming out of the romantic period where people who are gifted with particular genius don't really have to live by the rules that the rest of the people have to live by. Uh, you're free because you're a genius, because you've, given, you've been given this gift to express something. Um, the rules don't apply. <clears throat> and so she says, you'll never see me cry. She's sort of achieved her goal, or she thinks she has, and she has no regrets. Um, here I stand, and here I'll stay. Let the storm rage on. There's one, uh, one geek online uh, rewrote a, pa- wrote a parody of it, um, making the connection of Martin Luther saying, here I stand. And it was like, he's some Lutheran guy. who was like, rewrote the whole song from the perspective of Martin Luther. I don't think it's worth, probably not worth seeing, but... Um, um, so, so we witness here, as, as she builds her tower, my power flurries through the air, uh, into the ground, frozen fractals, all of it. Um, there's a wonderful freedom in not facing the consequences of what has just happened, but she's she's just enjoying what she's making. Which is, there's something it's pretty it's an amazing scene in my in my opinion. Um, and then there's this line about the perfect girl. Let it go, let it go. That perfect girl is gone. It's, it's fascinating. There was so much uh, commentary online about this film afterwards. Uh, I just scratched the surface, but it's interesting that the word perfect girl is clearly a pejorative term at this point. The perfect girl. She could have said the prudish, naive, sheltered girl. You know, whatever. That's what she means. Uh, but that the line that says that perfect girl is gone is the moment when Elsa gives herself this big sexy makeover, right? Where her, her clothes change, her hair changes, everything. She shakes her hair out. And, and so there's a double meaning to this word in the context of that, of that scene. Uh, by the standards of beauty of today, she's arguably become the perfect girl uh, as, she has, as she's dismissing this notion of, of uh, what perfect meant before. Uh, her, her hair is wind-tossed. Uh, her, her dress is slid up to the thigh. Uh, people have even commented that her breast size increases uh, by the end of the scene. Uh, and this is, uh, but interestingly, uh, <laughs> quite a few commentators online viewed this as really the only problem with the scene, that, that somehow this is being presented to young girls as what, as what perfection is. This, it's all about physical beauty, and, and isn't that terrible? And I was like, well, yeah, that, that's one problem, <laughs> but <laughs> I feel like there's more. Anyway, um, <clears throat> and then the cold never bothered me anyway. Uh, you know, the, the door slams in our face and in the face of everybody. So, again, total, complete change. Uh, the isolation that is the source of sadness at the beginning of the, of the song is now the only condition for happiness and wholeness. Um, later on in the movie, she says, I'm alone, but I'm alone and free. <laughs> and it's, it's totally worth it. So um, I think she's remade herself and is a new person and has literally constructed a new identity for herself. Um, and I think we can see the appeal of this. We can see uh, by now that this song appeals to contemporary Americans. Um, one of the brilliant things about the song is how flexible it is. It, it, it's a whole diversity of people identified with it and sort of made it their own. This song is for me, you know, no matter who they were. One, one guy said, who had a young daughter, he said, uh, this song is an aperitif for adolescence. That means like a, a, 
what's the word? A um, appetizer. <laughs> Giving a little taste, wetting, wetting her appetite for what adolescence will be, which will be a time of pushing the boundaries and questioning my parents and all these other things. And so he said, this is, this is what Let It Go was, in, intoxicating little, little snapshot of her future. Um, interestingly, also, it was, an, it was sort of claimed as an anthem by many people within the uh, LGBTQ community uh, for, for basically what it symbolizes, which is uh, this moment where, metaphorically, Elsa comes out and celebrates who she is and isn't ashamed anymore and, and can express herself for who she is. And so those are two examples of, of, of the way in which the song is, is infinitely flexible and, and uh, anybody could claim it as their own. Um, but it offers a very particular view of the self uh, that, that many people in this country want to be true. Um, there is the, a couple of different false choices that it offers. I think one is that uh, you either feel or you conceal. <laughs> um, to conceal means to suppress who you are, to hide and pretend to be inauthentic, uh, to not really be yourself. Or you could feel as an alternative to that, which is to reject all limitations put on you by relationships, chuck stifling obligations out the window like the crown, um, and that's presented as, as sort of the only two options here. Uh, now, in the context of the story, that might be how she views it, but I'm, I'm more concerned about how it's heard and received by millions and millions of young people. <laughs> um, so... You have these options. Total unfettered freedom on the one hand, or being oppressed and confined and ashamed on the other. Are those really the only two options we have? Um, another false choice is between freedom and responsibility. And this is where it gets really interesting to me because there's a, there's a, a whole legacy of Disney films that, that contrast freedom and responsibility. And if you go way, way back to the Jungle Book, uh, the song The Bear Necessities, it's all about you know the bear, Baloo, singing... Uh, in a good-natured way about how you should just lower your expectations for life, figure out what you need, worry about that, don't worry about anything else, <laughs> and you'll be happier. Uh, it's about the lazy life, forget about your troubles and your strife. And uh, it's not the message of the movie, finally, but it's, it was the popular song that sold the movie, uh, even more so with The Lion King. Is the, what song comes to mind when you think of the Lion King. Thank you. I'm glad you said that. I was, I was worried that someone might say uh, Circle of Life. But <laughs> right answer, yeah. <laughs> uh, the song is much more specific about abandoning responsibilities <laughs> and uh, it stresses uh, that, you know, it's all good. It's no worries, no problem. Hakuna Matata. You know, relax. And there's even a scene where uh, the meerkat character is, is singing the song to the lion and, and uh, filing his nails off. <laughs> Basically, both for his own self-protection, I assume, but also as if to say, what are these for? Like, there's, there's, no, uh, <laughs> there's no need, basically, to rise to any challenge that would require claws. So it's all good. They could have been done. And it's fascinating that the Lion King story itself never could have progressed and reached resolution unless the main character, Simba, actively renounces the problem-free philosophy Hakuna Matata. Like that's, that's, the movie could not have possibly ended there. Um, he has to return with all his strength and his claws and his responsibility. Uh, otherwise, there never would be a happy ending. Right? And uh, no resolution. Hakuna Matata is not the last word of the story, and it can't be. And my reason for mentioning that is that um, 
something very similar is going on in the movie Frozen. In Lion King, the story itself contradicts this problem-free philosophy, but Hakuna Matata sells the movie, still. Right? Still the most popular song in the movie. It's still what sells the movie, even though it's in complete opposition to the story itself. And this is what's going on in Frozen, I think. It's, it's, a, it's a formula that they've developed, which is pretty amazing. So um, many people have, have observed rightly that the hit song, Let It Go, is a total contradiction to the movie's message. Uh, the resolution of the story uh, is actually quite a good one, as Disney movies go. It's actually an example to me of, of how much power there is in borrowing from the Christian narrative. <laughs> if you... Um, you know, there's this good beginning of peace and harmony and love. Elsa and Anna are close friends. There, something goes horribly wrong. There's alienation. There's a fall, essentially. Uh, alienation enters the story. There's disintegration of relationships. They're estranged from each other. The problem deepens. There's a curse, even. And then there's this prophecy made that uh, this curse can only be removed by some supreme act of love. Sounds familiar. Um, the filmmakers actually are very clever in that they build up the expectation that this act of love is going to be true love's kiss or whatever. It's, it's going to be a romantic love, right? It's going to be some man coming and whisking Anna off her feet, and that's going to be the because they've you know that's been the the formula for so long. That's what I was expecting. I was like, okay, all right, <laughs> nothing surprising here. Uh, but then there's this twist in the act of love, love that actually does break the curse, releasing the land from from ice. Uh, is Anna's willingness to die for her sister. That's what does it. <laughs> and uh, there's even a, a resurrection scene of sorts where she comes back to life after dying for her sister uh, and the, 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 uh, the, everything is healed, uh, peace is restored, relationships are made whole again, Elsa's power is used for good and it's a safe thing now. Um, all because of an act of self-sacrificial love. And so, however, the song Let It Go communicates precisely the opposite message. It couldn't be more articulately opposed. Uh, in light of the end of the story, Elsa's attitude uh, in the song is just plain wrong. It's, it's a complex situation. We feel for her. We sympathize. But as a character in the story, she's making a mistake when, you know, during the song. Uh, it's Anna's commitment to not let go, uh, but rather doggedly pursue her sister, you know, the only reason why there's any resolution in the story at all and redemption so Elsa herself has to repudiate the sentiments of her own hit song at the end of the film and yet, here's the tricky part Let It Go has blatantly been marketed and presented by Disney as an inspirational song Right. This is supposed to, to fire the hearts of young girls all around the world Right. it's an inspirational song the movie ends after we have seen how destructive letting go can be, uh, after we've enjoyed our happy ending and the credits start up and what song is blasting, literally seconds after the self-sacrificial act <laughs> and reconciliation, it's Let It Go. It's the pop radio version of Let It Go, so it's a little different, but it's pretty much the same thing. And that's what comes up on the credits. And everybody leaves the cinema singing that song. And so uh, the hook for the whole movie is clearly, from the end, intended to be this song. And it was. And uh, Dana Stevens, one blogger, said, um, even the umpteenth time through, and even though, in plot terms, this is the moment when she is basically assuming the role of villain, 
It's impossible not to thrill at Elsa's surging sense of power as she throws off her gloves and the, the late king has always made her wear to hide her natural gifts and cast them into the raging storm. So the question I have is, uh, which constitutes a heroic act? Which virtue are we to aspire to? Self-expression, no matter what the cost to others? <laughs> or self-sacrificial love for the good of others? Um, Anna's pursuing love of Elsa uh, or Elsa's withdrawal into the ice palace. They can't both be examples of human excellence uh, because they're essentially opposites. But surprise, they are presented as heroic both by Disney. Because I think uh, Disney needs to sell the movie and a song about denying yourself and living sacrificially and practicing self-control and being responsible is not going to sell as an inspirational song today. <laughs> that doesn't inspire people. That doesn't get our heart, you know, our pulse up. Uh, but neither is a story that ends by glorifying self-expression at the expense of others. The story wouldn't have ended. Uh, that's not a Disney ending. There has to be reconciliation the end. Uh, the movie never could have ended with Let It Go scene because it produces tension and it's about alienation and, and little kids would have left the cinema crying. Why didn't the sisters become friends again? Right? So, and yet, uh, you know, <clears throat> at the same time, somehow the song gives us a picture of what the good life is and should be. So, my take after a long thought was kids left the cinema singing the song not crying, but singing the song Let It Go without realizing how sad it is. Um, the filmmakers are offering us, you know, we can satisfy both of these conflicting expectations for life. You can be autonomous, total personal freedom, uh, and yet trying to satisfy our deep desire for a happy ending, which means restored relationships. And uh, I'm not sure how many people noticed that, these, that this was in complete conflict. I don't know. Some people did, but... So, uh, a quick response. This is already already too late. Sorry, but there's so much that, uh, that one could say about this. Um, first of all, I want to say that uh, God isn't opposed to human potential. <laughs> uh, actually, God has uh, in mind something uh, much better than what we are now for us. We'll actually be, be glorified and changed forever. Uh, but the idea that we can define for ourselves what that potential is, is not really offered to us. Um, not an option to us as Christians. We have been made with dominion, um, but not made to be a law unto ourselves. And there's, there's a lot more that one could say, obviously, but I'm going to, just because of time, I'm going to skip to just one last response here, uh, and this idea of isolation and communion, the kind of growth, so instead of thinking about this idea of potential, or us heading for some future potential, uh, which actually God gets to define, not us, and it's about imitating Christ and becoming like Christ, that's actually the, that's the actualization that God has in mind for us, that's the potential that he sees and is forming us into there's so much in the Bible about um, being formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We're made in the image of God. Sin has, has cracked it and broken it. And Jesus, who is God and a human being, comes to restore the image of God to us fully in all its glory. And that's the potential that 
uh, will be actualized one day, not because we're so awesome and not because we try hard and we're so single-minded and driven, but because God is going to make it so, <laughs> because uh, he will ensure the end of the story. Go back and read Philippians 3 about pressing on towards this goal that, that he's, he can't achieve in this life, but that he can do with all his strength because he, know, he knows God is with him and Christ is in him. But uh, this idea of isolation and communion, the kind of growth God wants to see in us does not happen in isolation from other people. Uh, it can't. Um, if you think of becoming Christ-like, what are the, what are the, what are the, um, that list of things that, that Dick had on the, on the, uh, the screen this morning, these ways in which we actually can imitate Christ, they, they all have to do with how we're interacting with other people. Self, self-sacrificial love, courage, uh, humility, all of that can be lived out only in relationships. Uh, only in relationships that cost something. So um, it's, not, it's very telling that in the very beginning uh, of creation, it is not good that Adam be alone. Adam needs somebody else to live alongside, to live with, to, to serve, in order to become more fully who he's supposed to be. Uh, it's not at all to say that, that uh, single people are only half a person until they get married. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. Uh, but it is to say that, that human beings are fully themselves in relationship. And we shouldn't expect uh, to grow in the way that God wants us to grow if we are on our own, in our room. So, <clears throat> I think within community we can seek, rather than personal self-actualization, we can seek shalom, which is this... Hebrew idea of uh, holistic well-being, the good, the goodness and well-being of ourselves and other people and creation, um, dependent on God and in relationship with God. And uh, if our goal is Christ-likeness and our concern is to bring shalom, we will be as concerned for the future glory of our neighbors as we are for our, our own glory. Right? And that's actually a picture of, of a community in which people are growing in Christ-likeness. Um, I, because I've gone so late, I'm going to stop there. But I am—I uh, apologize for going so long. Um, there's a lot more that one could say uh, about this idea of conflicting expectations in life. But I will—I uh, will end there. And anyone who would like to chat, I would love to, to talk with you. Um, if you'd rather go to dinner, that's just fine. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.